Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. In fact, I was we just did our intro and we do like the countdown so that we nail the woohoo. And I did it and I just had I was like soloing. I totally missed it. I don't know. I just like blanked. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to say woohoo right now? I, One of those days. I mean, episode 26, we're gonna get uh, our heads all turned in screws. Um, yeah, so episode 26, that means that we've been doing this for six months. What? That's so crazy. Nice math there, by the way. I know. I'm pretty- Actually, we did. We had a span of like three weeks where we did two episodes in one week. So oh, like, we're just barely hitting six months. You're undermining my uh, my sweet math there. Um, but yeah, we're so fortunate that you're listening to this. I mean, it's blown us away, the reception and everything. But And we're going to keep doing it. So hopefully at episode 260, um, we'll you know, you'll know a lot more about us and we'll know a lot more about you. Um, so episode 26 is our Rod Woodson episode who wore number 26. My favorite story about Rod Woodson, NFL Hall of Famer, is that in, in one of the NFL seasons, he tore his ACL in the first game. The coach, Bill Cowher, believed in him so much that he didn't put him on injured reserve, which would have held him out for the season. And Rod Woodson waited all the way to the Super Bowl to come back. Um, and in that game, he broke up a pass. And then after he got up, he just pointed to his knee. And I thought that that's like the best way to get over an injury. Every time you get back from a run and like, let's say you had a stress fracture in your shin or something, first run back, you just point to the shin. I'm going to be pointing to my hamstring until I'm like 95. going to be like, this bionic hamstring, it's doing it, it's doing it, it's doing it, yeah. <laughs> I um, lo- love it so But much. it's funny because, you know, we've been doing the, the athletes recently. I don't know what we're going to do as we get into episodes in the hundreds. We're going to have to do some pretty crazy math to make these like athlete jerseys work. Yeah, we'll have to go to like periodic table and then eventually just go to zip code numbers, kind of like ludicrous in that when he has, says he has hose and different area codes oh i like, like that the 301 well we're we're in the 94087 area code right now so we're yeah. gonna i mean that's gonna be we're gonna be old i think he just does the first three numbers so we'll have like a good run right there because he does like a million area codes in that and then we'll need to really increase it as we well it's away. funny because i spend my time on the treadmill doing math in my head with the treadmill numbers that are appearing so now i'm just gonna be doing math in my head with like these podcast episodes it's gonna be so fun perfect added benefit and so we are recording from california as we promised um the flight wasn't too bad we were full pp Megan, Megan had us have goggles on and the really nice masks and everything. It was very, very impressive. It was actually it was a little like overwhelming at yeah. times. Like it was interesting. Like sitting there with goggles and a full N95 on during the flight, I was like, <sighs> I was yeah. like kind of like hyperventilating. I very briefly became an anti-masker because I was like, this is making me feel so anxious right now. I couldn't read. I was like, I'm not. I all yeah. I could do was like sit there and scroll through old pictures on my phone because I had no attention span to read or like do normal things. Yeah, no, I totally feel the same way. But we are moving out in uh, of the California place, and it feels for me, it feels very good. Well, it's funny because I struggle with goodbyes. Like we've talked about this. I for whatever reason I harp this deep nostalgia for this yeah. California apartment that's 300 square feet doesn't even have a shower curtain it's like there's kind of like gross things scattered about like <laughs> one day we came back to a note on our door that said your dog needs to stop making a ruckus at 6 a.m on Sundays which honestly I mean Addie is just saying that she loves the world very loudly um but yeah it really apartment life is a little bit different I just I don't think I'm good at goodbyes in general yeah. like I think for people and places I'm awful at goodbyes I do that Irish goodbye thing where I just like peace out at the end of parties <laughs> Or I come up with these like very intricate plans in which I'm going to see people. Yeah, yeah. I'm "I'm going to see you in four years and three months at this exact time. We're going to be in each other's lives forever. This is going to be great. I don't do that with stuff. 
stuff. Like as we've go been going through this move out process, I'm like that shirt, whatever it's yeah. gone. But people in places I struggle with. That's why I love social media. Because like you meet someone and you're like, oh, I'm never going to see you again. It's like, nah, I'm going to follow everything in your life on social media. But apologies for the sound quality on this one, because we were traveling with a Theragun across a uh, country and we didn't feel like bringing a Theragun and a microphone through oh, TSA man. because both of those are kind of interesting looking up. I wonder what type of production they'd think we're doing in TSA. Oh, a damn good production. Yeah. Um, yeah. And speaking of social media, uh, we watched the movie Eighth Grade, which had 99% on Rotten Tomatoes and was very good. Um, but I thought it was a really powerful movie as it relates to like this whole idea of how you're being perceived in what you're doing. So Bo Burnham, the, the director of that movie, amazing comedian, what he said is that he, he saw a girl in like a, a young girl, like a middle school girl in the mall taking selfies of herself and smiling and then putting the camera down and frowning as she was going through it. And the whole movie is basically that scene over and over and over again. And so it was very painful for me to watch, but also very helpful. Actually, I was going to say it was that scene, but we did miss a few of them because yeah. you made me fast forward through some scenes. You're like, I'm just too uncomfortable. I can't watch this. It's yeah. giving me too much anxiety. That was an hour and a half movie that we probably watched in 40 minutes, but it also makes me really painfully aware of being a, like this, you know, in social media, we're all performers and, and knowing that your performance is being watched and just how unhealthy that is. Um, and, and, you know, how much for in my own life and in athletes we coach, I really want to emphasize the importance of, no, you live your life. And then however people perceive that on the outside is none of you, it doesn't matter. And like, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's dust in the wind. Well, it's interesting because you brought this point up and my first, my first thought was actually people don't care that much. Yeah. And sometimes it's an empowering thing. It's like, so true. I think about the zoom call that I had the other week where I was kind of nervous. I was like doing a presentation and I showed up and I was like the only person on video talking to like 15 different gray squares yeah. on the zoom meeting and none of them cared. They were probably just out walking, you know, feeding their baby, doing whatever. Yeah. And it was one of those validating reasons where I was like, yeah, people don't really care. And sometimes that's, that's an empowering thing. Hopefully they were pulling a Jeffrey Tubin <laughs> with the pants down on the zoom call. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's especially important in athletics because often as an athlete, like the athletic journey is so complicated and there's a temptation to present this narrative that is coherent on social media, but no athletic journey is particularly coherent. It is all ups and downs and injuries and successes and, and everything else. And, and I know, would make the argument that people probably aren't following it closely yeah. enough to know if it's coherent yeah. or not. Like, I think the assumption in your brain is, it's like, Oh, people know about the ins and outs and all the stories. Like, yeah, people probably don't. Well, and you know, as T Swift said, haters going to hate. And, you know, lovers are going to love. So like, you know, if someone is out to get you in any way or, or not give you the benefit of the doubt, they're going to find something that they don't like about you, no matter what you do. And the people that love you just want you to be fulfilled. And, and that for me has been the most powerful realization is like, you know, especially at first with coaching, where I was constantly aware of like everything someone said about swap online, like, or, or whispered or whatever. And then I was like, man, that's bullshit. It doesn't really matter what I do anyway. And the people that care they're just going to be there no matter what. Well, what I love too is I love thinking about like bad performances, yeah. times that you mess up as this litmus test for people who love you because love like it. people who love you should be on you, should be with you throughout the journey. Like I remember once having a bad race and coming into my swap vlogs and everyone was just so supportive and amazing. Yeah. And it was like, this is my crew. These are my people. And I think like for me going through those times and coming out of it with this like support crew is something that's been valuable. Yeah. I love it. So like find the people Find the lovers, essentially. Like, you know, find find the helpers that Mr. Rogers said. Find the find the people that are there for you, and just be like, okay, this person does not care about like how this run goes or or this injury or anything like that. All they care about is that I am like traveling through life in an authentic way. Um, and I think that like the more I see, especially pro athletes have to go through that, the more it breaks my heart. It's like you're seeing this movie, the eighth grade being like it's like the 25th grade for athletes and and i think as a community we can really strive to 
try to turn down the notch on that as much as possible. I think on the flip side of that too, what eighth grade made me think about is the fact that there's always going to be haters yeah. out there in the world too. So like, if you ever want to know about the world of haters, go to Amazon, go to a good book and look at the book reviews. There are going to be tons of one-star book reviews saying ridiculous things. I recently did this. I was trying to find a book to read on Amazon and I found the Matt McConaughey book, Greenlights. And there were some nasty reviews on there. And I was like, holy crap. But it just goes to show like, I mean, that's objectively a great book. Like people are going to find a way to hate everything. That's yeah. just like the world in which we live. And we talk about that a lot on this podcast because I think everyone deals with this in their thing. Like some, for some like pro athletes, maybe it's on Instagram for other people, it's at their work or whatever. Or I imagine like literally a family, it applies to everyone in some way of like, how, how is this thing received? Not how is it experienced? And like, that's the worst. I like tonight, for example, we're back in California. We're going to have Nick the Greek, which is this like kind of like moderately sketchy. I would love to see what their stars are on Yelp. Oh, it, I have looked and it is not particularly good. The, that yellow sauce that we would like bathe in, people don't particularly appreciate. There's probably a lot of good analogies for that yellow sauce. Oh I, I do give the one star the one star reviews credit for that because like I think you can make a lot well, of good jokes with yellow sauce. Yeah, if we brought that yellow sauce through security with the Theragun and the mic, TSA would be setting all their, all their dogs out to get us. Um, the final thing we want to end the intro with is this really powerful clip online. It, search, if you can, Indiana, Indiana football coach interview. Um, and essentially, Indiana... Uh, perennial ter terrible football team has had an incredible year. Their coach, Tom Allen, was doing an interview after their big win. Um, and as he's giving this interview, his players just came up one by one and would like jump on him or do something else and say, this is the best coach in the country. I love this man and all this other stuff. Um, and it was so powerful. And it was almost to a point, I was like, this is like everything you want in an organization or team or family or, or friends or anything. Um, and it comes back to what Tom Allen's big, coaching motto is, is L-E-O, love each other. And I think that, you know, no matter what we're doing in life, that can be something that we carry through. And it's like, love each other. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win every game or be like Indiana, you know, like I think that that probably played a role, but they just as well could have loved, lost every game. I think the coolest part from that too, is that they expressed it. Like yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people, like when they think about like loving each other, they think about playing it cool. Yeah. And it's like, no, don't freaking play it cool. Like go out there and show that because it's someone else's superpower. And I think like, it is also is contagious. Like yeah. I think like one player probably started that and then other people followed on on top of it. And yeah. it's that, that to me was just so Yeah. Crazy. So, you know, create this garden that's just full of love and, and from that such cool things will grow. You know, Ted Lasso is the show that really embody that. And Tom Allen is that person in, in college football right now, but like we can be that person with our family or our friends or, or, you know, whatever. And so, or our yellow sauces. I was say our Theragun. Yeah. Um, and finally two recommendations for this week. Uh, one, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So good. That is on, such a good comedy. On Amazon. Um, the second is to watch Real Sports on HBO on uh, the one that's on Psychedelics, the little 15-minute clip. It is fascinating. And I think, especially if you're out there struggling through something that you can simply not let go, it might be worth exploring some options there. Well, it's funny because I didn't see that. I was on a meeting call and I came downstairs and David told me like 30 facts immediately yeah. about psychedelics. I was like, what did you just watch? I mean, I, I've been pretty fascinated with things like ayahuasca forever and I don't, I've never done stuff like that. But, um, you know, Kerry Rhodes, a football player who's an amazing safety in this, in this documentary is like, I've been, was dealing with CTE symptoms, depression, wanted to commit suicide, did an ayahuasca retreat. And he's just like, I, I found peace in my journey. That doesn't mean that he's always happy or always not having these things, but it took one exposure to have long-term effects. And like, 
That's so cool. It's like the ultimate, it's like turning on the love each other's lights in a brain for some people. That's fascinating. There's tons of good research out there too. And it's it's a really evolving field of research. Awesome. You want to jump into the topics? Let's do it. We're, we're going to try to do three. Do you think I was going to say, we're leaving 20 minutes to talk about running. What is going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do it. Let's uh, do topic it. one. Uh, topic one is on cadence. This is from, we got, actually got two questions on cadence. One is from BM and the other is from BP. The first is, I'm a taller athlete at 6'3", but notice my cadence is pretty low at 160 strides per minute. I'm not super speedy and normally average between nine to 10 minutes per mile on easy days. Do you ever focus on improving cadence with your athletes? If so, what is your approach? I've had a few running related injuries so far and think it could be due to overstriding and putting too much pressure on certain areas. And so I love these questions. We actually got like five different ones that were tangentially related to cadence. Um, and I think it's especially hard for people that are trying to get into running or, or really getting serious about it and seeing all these different numbers out there. So let's start with some of the numbers. Uh, the, the one you might've heard is 180 strides per minute. Uh, the origins of that are in the 1984 Olympics where coach Jack Daniels, a legendary coach, was tracking athlete turnover uh, and found that the average was 180. That didn't mean every athlete was one, at 180, but from there, that kind of took on an apocryphal, like everyone talking about it number. And a 2019 study in the Journal of Applied Physiology by Jeff Burns, who Actually, also- Actually, he ran the race. Yeah, I yeah. was going through this and I'm like, I was, as a researcher, I was like, to be able to pull this off and run the race and conduct the study at and the same time- And finish fifth in the world at the 100K championships while doing the study. Total boss. Also, what? I'd love to see his IRB. I don't know if we put that in his IRB, that yeah. he's also going to be running the race at the same time as conducting the race. That's amazing. I'm sure that has some extra considerations. Um, but actually uh, validated those same findings. So found an average of 182 strides per minute in the 100K champs, but there was a massive variation from 155 strides per minute at the low end, which is extremely low, to 203 at the high end, which is like hummingbird status, um, and found that it was related to height. So the questioner that's 6'3", this is relevant, but not to sex, weight, age, or experience. It's um, funny, when you first put this on the outline, I read experience as appearance, and I was oh, like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just get sexier with higher canes. Actually, no, Jim Walmsley has low canes, so you get sexier with lower canes, apparently. Um, and then speed matters, too. So obviously, on your slower days or your easy days, you're not going to have the same cadence as on your faster days. This isn't a, this isn't an independent variable. This is a highly dependent variable. Um, so, okay, so those numbers noted, um, what are the biomechanical theories for why high cadence may be better? The big one here all gets down to energy transfer. Um, higher cadence usually leads to reduced uh, ground contact time, which also re leads to reduced impact per stride. Both those things are really productive if you're gonna be running, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of steps on your body each week. Um, so when you're looking at experienced runners, you usually see a slightly higher cadence, and that's kind of where the higher numbers start to come in. What I think is interesting, though, is when you think about uh, ground contact time, you often, often think about the inverse of that, too, yeah. which is um, the time in the air. Sure. And so there's runners like Jim Walmsley out there who have these very low cadences, and they're running at faster paces, but that actually means that their time in the air is just higher. Yeah, they're that flying. Was, that was mind-boggling to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah they're like, he, Jim, Jim Walmsley is like a plane with shoots. Um, and you know his ground contact time is actually is still pretty low, you would assume, maybe a little bit higher than some of the people at 203, but he's so efficient that he can do that. And that gets back to some specific numbers. I was going through Strava to look at, to get some like de uh, special data for this podcast. Um, at JFK, his course record, Hayden Hawks was at 174, and that includes some trail time. So you would assume trails would reduce the uh, canes a little bit. Jim Walmsley, when he uh, set the course record at JFK, was at 156 cadence, extreme outlier in the low end. Uh, Emily Harrison Torrance was at 181, which would um, right around what you'd assume. But then I saw Scotty Hawker at the Kepler Challenge, a 60K this past weekend, at 197 cadence. Was that on trails too? Uh, most mixed trails and roads. And like he had a breakthrough run there. And it just shows that these elite athletes probably have optimized what works for them. Um, and so if you're not like right at a specific number, it's okay. 
yeah. I think the other thing about cadence too is, is that it's just one factor in the yeah. larger realm of biomechanics. This is like looking at a run and being like, what is your pace, but not taking into account the terrain, yeah. you know, the trails, whatever it may be. And so like, I think it's also important to put into context to whatever the larger biomechanics yeah. are going on. And so when we're, when you look at a runner and say, oh, that cadence is probably too low, probably what you're seeing is not cadence necessarily. It's almost more like ground contact time. So Jim Walmsley being a great example. If you look at Jim Walmsley run, no one's going to say that's a bad thing, right? It looks like like a poem. He looks like poetry in motion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a piece of art has come to write. Monet crafted that. Uh, meanwhile, when I was getting into running, I was coming from a sprinting background. Is going to say Picasso? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's that's actually a good art history burn. I like it. Um, but I was kind of a plotter because I was coming from a sprinting background. So even though my cadence was probably higher than Jim's, I absolutely had to increase it where I was going to get injured and not be efficient at all. So I had to consciously go about increasing my cadence little by little. I had to do it through learning barefoot running, learning, um, you know, just to take shorter strides because I was a sprinter that was like, I just wanted to jump from stride to stride and it was going to be terrible. And it took me three or four years to learn that. And as you're thinking about increasing cadence, what we often see in athletes is that at first it's largely more inefficient because your yeah. body is adjusting to something that it hasn't done before. Like likely you've fallen into these patterns over time because it's like, what's most efficient for you in that moment. But with cadence, like thinking about the long-term process yeah. of, of adapting and fixing your cadence is something that's important over like the short term. That's why that that's happen. why the studies on form are so weak in general, because if you're taking an instantaneous snapshot of someone's running form, of course, changing it is going to reduce their economy because you're changing something that they do. And it's like it's a change practice. It needs to be long-term. And, and that gets back into some other studies. So there's a 2010 study, for example, in uh, journal Clinical Biomechanics that looked at gait retraining. So essentially giving athletes cues to reduce ground contact time. Um, that resulted in immediate reduction in loading, and it was maintained at follow-up. And a number of studies have validated those feelings over time, or those those findings over time. And um, so, essentially, you can change your form; it can help, but do you need to? And so, our feelings are that essentially, one ground contact time matters. Running, you know, you want to be lighter on your feet; that matters. Um, and being at the extremes of cadence matters. Um, unless you're Jim Walmsley, you probably don't want to be 160 or below. Uh, similarly, you don't want to be at 200 or above or unless you're Scotty Hawker. Um, in between, a lot of different things can work as long as you're running light, running soft, um, short, efficient strides. And then thinking about two practical solutions for if you want to go about increasing cadence, what we've seen work well for runners is having slightly more minimal shoes. Yeah. Um, so shoes like where you can feel the ground optimally. And then also to spending some time at, on runs at the end of runs barefoot. So not running barefoot the entire run, yeah. but like spending a mile at the end of a run on a grass field, working on this light and, and fast turnover. Or not using minimal shoes all the time either. For me, what was essential is learning how to run. And like at first, it took me four years to learn how to run after football. And then after I did, now I can apply that you know, if I was wearing stilts, you know, and, um, the big key here, and I, and this is something to constantly gate retrain yourself since you're not participating in these studies, what can you do? Um, there's a number of different things that, you know, with your upper body and, and, and other things, but when you're thinking just about cadence, think about, okay, I want to run light today, you know, because like at nine minute pace, your cadence is going to be way lower, but you can still run light. You can still have that reduced ground contact time. Similarly, at six minute pace, you can run heavy with high ground contact time, and that is still bad. So you can apply that across the board. It'll lead to different numbers, um, but in general, slightly higher number is probably better. I think there's places online where you can find songs that match the cadence oh. that you want, which I think is a great way to work on cadence and something that, that is like, very true to my heart. Well, I'm such a bad dancer that I'd probably fuck that up. 
up too. <laughs> I'd be on some totally different cadence and it would be like, I'd have to choose something entirely. But I think last point on this topic though, is I've seen a lot of athletes and most people get cadence from looking at their watch. You can also count, which I, I have never brought myself to count my cadence. Yeah. I just like can't focus enough really? on that while That's I run. Yeah, yeah. I counted my cadence every run for like three years as I was figuring all this You're stuff You're crazy. Out. That's very strange. Well, because I was so bad at it. I mean, I, my running form was so terrible. Um, but yeah, so on trails, you need to be careful. On, on trails, you need to be careful because if you think about it, like if you're going uphill on a trail, like you're naturally going to be reducing your cadence or up, you're changing your cadence. Sometimes it may increase to kind of like tailor to whatever the trail is throwing at you. So like important not to judge it on like technical trail runs. Also, if you're taking stops and not stopping yeah. your watch, your cadence goes to zero. I've seen this in athletes. Like, why is my cadence 140? It's like, well, you stopped for four minutes. And so your cadence went to zero during that time. I love it. Yeah. And you can't run late if your foot, if you're landing out in front of your center of gravity. Or if you're you know. sitting in an aid station eating. <laughs> Perfect way to end it. Okay. Topic two. You want to read it? Topic two is on blood donation. I love this topic and it's from T. I have a question for the podcast. I'm interested in starting blood donation, but I'm not sure how that works with running. With my blood type, I would only be donating plasma, but I'm concerned that I won't be able to donate as often as I'd like to, or I'll have to decrease my training volume. What are your thoughts? This is a fantastic question. We I actually we get this all the time um, from questions and or from athletes, and it's a question that we haven't tackled before. Yeah, we haven't talked about this in any article anywhere else because blood donation is a societal good, right? And so we don't want to discourage a societal good in any context. So if you're if you're listening to this, you can skip ahead if you really don't want to. Like blood donation is awesome, especially if you have a rare blood type. Please do it. But there are considerations that are important, and I think that that's what we're going to get into today. And I think it's important first to start with the different types of blood donation. There's actually number of different types of blood donation. So this question specifically asked about plasma, um, but many athletes when they come to us thinking about blood donation are asking about whole blood donation. Um, and then in addition, you can donate platelets. And then the um, the Red Cross has this thing called Power Red. And then we got a number of questions on whole blood donation specifically. Like a lot of people reached out about that. Um, like when you just go in and get your blood donation, that, that is whole blood. But this question was about plasma. So let me ex first explain what blood is, like what are the components of blood? And then we'll dive into like the different, different um, methods of blood donation and then also how that impacts performance. So blood is composed of um, plasma. So it's 55% plasma and then 45% red blood cells and then about less than 1% are white blood cells and uh, platelets. And then so when you think about donating plasma, so you're not donating red blood cells when you do donate plasma. What you are donating, um, which is plasma, is about 95% water. Um, there's proteins and antibodies in there, electrolytes, clotting factors, CO2, oxygen. Um, and then you can also donate serum, which is essentially blood plasma without those clotting factors. And so lots of different ways to break this down. Um, and basically what they do is in these situations, situations in which you're donating plasma or serum, they draw all your blood and then they centrifuge it, which means that you're essentially going on one of those like crazy, your blood's going on one of those like crazy spinny rides in an in amusement park. And it's drawing apart <laughs> these different components of the you, blood. You lost me there, but the whole time I was imagining a vampire and just how aroused they would be right now. <laughs> we have some vampires in the audience that are really going for we it. We can send them to the Centrifuge Amusement Park. Um, yeah, so let's start with whole donation, whole blood donation. There was a 2019 review study in Plus One uh, that looked at some of the impacts. Um, when you do whole blood donation, plasma volume can rebound in 24 to 72 hours, which makes sense because we've talked about heat training in the past, and we know that doing four exposures to a sauna can increase plasma volume by 20%. So you would assume that if it re gets reduced by a similar amount, it'll also get back to baseline. But where it gets complicated is related to hemoglobin mass. Um, there's a number of different studies on this, but a 2008 study in Transfusion Journal found that hemoglobin mass can take 36 plus or minus 11 days to rebound to baseline. Uh, that's extremely important because hemoglobin mass, red blood cells, is largely associated with what we consider fitness. It's how you transport oxygen to working muscles. Um, it is the fuel source. It is everything that matters when it comes to running. Um, and that also corresponds with a decrease in VO2 max in studies, um, though you know not too much different 
depending on different training interventions. So that gets really complicated. That's a pretty long time to be dedicating yourself to reduce red blood cell counts. And that's where the, the complications of whole blood donation come in. And the other factor that I see here too is ferritin. So yeah. often when you donate ferritin, when, when you donate whole blood, your ferritin plummets. Yeah. Um, and for female athletes in particular who may struggle with ferritin or even male athletes who may struggle with ferritin or their iron levels, that can take a long time to rebuild. And ferritin actually, even independent of anemia, which is a, a drop in yeah. hematocrit, um, a low ferritin is, impacts performance by itself. Yeah, and it probably largely depends on whether ferritin and red blood cell count is a limiting factor for an athlete. So an athlete that has trouble producing red blood cells, that doesn't mean they're anemic. It's just like not the highest thing. There, if it's a, already a limiting factor, when you make it a super limiting factor, that's probably going to be really tough. Whereas there's probably athletes out there, like I mean, we see blood tests with athletes of you know hemoglobin of 15.8. Like they'll probably donate blood and be back pretty much more rapidly. In fact, say. actually, athletes who have iron overload or high levels of iron, the therapy for that is blood donation. Oh, like bloodletting. Like, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, like, oh my gosh, it's yeah, going yeah. back to the 1700s. Yeah. It's crazy. But I think, and then if we go into the the performance impacts from blood plasma donations, so blood plasma donations actually impacts performance for fewer for less weeks, which makes sense because you know, you're not donating your red blood cells. There is some performance impacts though that's seen over a couple of days. And that's because in the plasma that you're donating, there's bicarbonate and bicarbonate is used for lactate buffering. And so uh -huh. athletes often have a reduction in their lactate threshold after they do blood plasma donations, but typically that only lasts for a few days. But I've recently been getting this question a lot related to blood plasma donations because right now there's the concept of um, COVID convalescent plasma, where if you've had COVID, mm -hmm. you can give plasma, which contains antibodies to help other patients um, improve their immune response mm -hmm. to COVID. But what I've been telling athletes is that a lot of athletes have asked me this like question that you never want to ask your medical professional, yeah. like, what would you do? Yeah. Because there's so many different, there's so many different things involved in that. But what I'm telling athletes is, you know, I probably wouldn't do it if you're a high level athlete, because one, getting COVID as an athlete is experimental as it is. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know there. what's going to happen. And then you add in the, the, um, the concept of COVID convalescent plasma donation, and that's another experimental concept. And I just don't love layering in two experimental concepts on one's on one, even though it's, you know, it's a great thing to do right now for society. Yeah. And th that gets back to the complication of all this stuff. Great thing to do for society might be a pretty shitty thing to do to yourself, depending on who you are. And that, I mean, we see that in coaching all the time where, you know, often it'll be after the fact where someone will be like, you know, three days after they donated blood, they'll be having terrible runs and tell us, oh yeah, I donated blood. Do you think that would do anything? And it's like, there's a whole body of literature on this. It's just, I think sometimes people are a little bit more hesitant to, to talk about it openly. The other thing about COVID too is, is that I'm having athletes just really listen to their body right now coming back from COVID. And when you add the, the blood plasma donation in on top of that, you don't know what's due to COVID and what's due to blood plasma donation. And so it becomes very hard to think about structuring training yeah. and coming back from running. And so I say just leave one experimental variable yeah. as is in that situation. But again, like, you know, it's, it's great to do. And if you do, do and if you do donate blood, that's amazing. Just focus on taking it easy on the return. Your body will get back. You'll be stronger than ever. And we totally, especially if you have a rare blood type, all of this stuff, forget it, donate, you know, it's best. But I think, yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing on this topic too, is I've gotten a lot of questions related to the difference between blood donation and going in for routine blood draws. So things like inside tracker, we sent a ton of athletes to inside tracker. In fact, we've picked up some of these ferritin abnormalities after blood donation. Yeah. We see like ferritin plummets, you know, inside tracker gets great tests. And all of a sudden you see this yeah. rapid plummet in ferritin. You're like, Oh Lord, that must have come from blood donation or, you know, from any other number of things. But so when you go to donate blood, you're donating 0.5 liters of blood and the human body contains somewhere between like 4.7 
7 to 5.5 liters of blood. And so when you think about that, that's like one-tenth of the the, yeah. um, the body's reserves that you're, you're donating, um, which is quite a bit. They actually, I saw one that that um, reported that that was equal to one pint out of 10 pints oh, of man. blood in the body. And I was like, we're talking Ben and Jerry's now, cartons here. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The vampires in the house are now hungry in addition to being aroused. Like, what are we doing with these vampires? Say, I've got 10 Ben and Jerry's fish food uh, pints of blood in my body right now. How cool that is, is that? Cool. The human body is really freaking cool. Uh, but so... Um, companies like Inside Tracker, if you go in for a routine blood test by a doctor, those little vials of blood that you see being drawn from your arm, those are 2.5 to 3 milliliters. That is so small in comparison to the 0.5 liters that's being yeah. donated. So like, if you think about, so if you go in and you give 10 vials of blood, that's 30 milliliters and compare that to 500 milliliters of blood donation. So it's, it's quite small. It's not going to impact performance. I would say though, I've had some athletes who go in to, for like a routine blood draw and have a vasovagal response or they faint <laughs> or they just, you know, are stressed for the test. So I want to do it on race week just yeah. because you're introducing this new variable of, of blood draw right before a race. Probably not the best. That idea. would be me. I'm squirming through this whole conversation. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of blood. Well, we, were, we were preparing for this podcast. I was pretty sure you were going to pass out just as we were talking about donating blood. Yeah. Um, awesome. Do you want to try to do topic three? Let's do it. Uh, this is going to be fast. Yeah. So topic three is on training zones. This is from R. What's the difference between a steady run and a tempo run? There seems to be all sorts of definitions and I'm just confused. Using the five zone model, I've heard that a steady run is done in zone three, but I've also heard that it's done in zone two. Tempo runs, as far as I can tell, reside either within zone three or at lactate threshold. It seems like tempos usually come in intervals, while steady efforts seem to come in bouts just long enough to cease being an interval. What gives? So we're going to talk about this in much greater detail in a future podcast. The, what I really wanted to draw down and why I forced this in the last couple of minutes is that when you're thinking about your training, remember that the body does not silo how you use energy based on our con constant uh, conception of energy systems, right? Like if you're doing a lactate threshold workout, you are not just working your lactate threshold. You're working everything. It's on a spectrum. The body doesn't really care about that. We summarize it in very specific ways because of how things are measured in a lab, but the adaptation does not work that way. Yeah, yeah. So I also think the other thing too is that zones vary vastly by day. So like yeah. for me, coming off of a rest day, my zone four looks very different than it would um, if I were you know in a period of heavy training. And so also to take that into consideration yeah. too. So tempo running is moderately hard running that is not a race, but is purposeful. Um, and and steady running is something that you can be much more willing to do, especially on days when you're getting really fit, which equates to like aerobic threshold where you can hold for a few hours. So where you go out on your easy runs and actually just let yourself run without worrying about keeping it super duper easy. Um, and essentially to embrace that all of this stuff is on a spectrum. That's kind of what I wanted to get at here that, um, you know, the, the body doesn't work in the minute uh, specific variations that we want it to when we're programming training. And that's super important. And I find that so comforting too, because as a perfectionist, I think if I were prescribed zones, I would be staring at my heart rate the entire yeah. watch being like, it must be zone four today. And yeah. I love that I don't have that in my training because it like, it allows me to embrace this like non-perfectionist side of training. Yeah. And so last thing, we're going to ask for ratings and reviews again. Like do we that? Yeah, let's do it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So review our podcast, rate it, say that you like us if you do we're clearly not practiced in the statement yeah yeah it's not not really our thing um but yeah we wanted to reflect after six months and just say you know we love you guys we're so appreciative that you would listen to us at all it's the coolest thing in the world seriously thank you so much yeah we are such a gents woohoo have an amazing day bye